Welcome to the Human Experience Podcast, the only podcast designed to fuse your left and right brain hemispheres and feed it the most entertaining and mentally engaging topics on the planet. As we approach our ascent, please make sure your frontal, temporal and occipital lobes are in their full upright position. As you take your seat of consciousness, relax your senses and allow us to take you on a journey. We are the Intimate Strangers. Thank you for listening. Ladies and gentlemen, the human experience is live. Welcome. Thank you so much for being here. We've got a tremendous program planned for you this evening. If you are looking for everywhere we are live, our full network, if you have not joined the mailing list yet, if you would like to support the show, I know the world is upside down, it seems like, but if you want to support us, simply go to allmylinks.com slash thehumanxp. That is where you will find everywhere we are, quite literally. Richard Hoagland is here with us tonight, ladies and gentlemen. (laughs) A living legend in my eyes. It's going to be a phenomenal conversation. We're going to be talking about the coronavirus tonight, of course. The larger implications of this. We are going to be talking about the possibility of ancient civilizations in outer space. And the things that my guest has done to reveal that to us. We're going to be talking about the Kali Yuga age cycles. So whether you are here listening to the podcast version, replay, or live version of this, thank you so much for your presence. Please grab a drink, sit back, and enjoy this conversation. The Human Experience is in session. My name is Xavier Catano. My guest for this evening is Richard C. Hoagland. Richard is an author, scientist, researcher, and former NASA consultant and museum space science curator who has spent his career analyzing and investigating the data generated by space missions. Richard served as the science advisor to Walter Cronkite and CBS News. Richard also hosts The Other Side of Midnight, which is ranked in the top 10 best late night radio shows in the world today. Phenomenal show, Richard, it's such a pleasure and an honor, sir. Welcome to HXP. Xavier, thank you. You're kind of making me blush. (laughs) (laughs) I had to fix my hair before the show started because, I mean, I've been listening to you, Richard, for so long. I mean, back in the the sort of heyday of Art Bell, God rest his soul, but... You know, I would get this, as I was telling you, I would get this little clock radio and put it, I was just a kid, you know, and so to go sort of full circle and to have you on my show tonight with us tonight, I am just, I couldn't be more chuffed. I'm so happy about this. You know, that that, that story is kind of funny because I remember a few years ago living with my parents and my siblings in New Jersey and in the middle of the night, with a transistor radio. Remember those little cheap transistors? They were about the size of a pack of playing cards, and they played on a small battery, and they had a horrible speaker, and everything you heard through it was totally distorted, mm-hmm. and you didn't care. 
Anyway, I would listen to that little transistor radio to Long John Nebel broadcasting from WOR across the river in Manhattan uh, on, on a show that basically was the template for the other side of midnight. In huh. fact, I even I even stole his theme music. <laughs> <laughs> oh wow, that's an interesting story. I mean, who knew? You know, it, it's it seems like the work of of generations. You know, I I admire your work so much, and I sort of picked up where I could. You know, where you left off, and the the stuff that you're doing, and the stuff that Art Bell did when he was around, and. So, you know, hopefully we can get to the bottom of some of these mysteries that have plagued us, our consciousness. And, I mean, it's it's really interesting what's going on in the world today, right now, Richard, because... Well, that's one way of looking at it. <laughs> I mean, the world is on its head, and it seems like... Are you like, kidding? It seems you know, like... This is, this is every apocalypse that everybody ever wrote in a Marvel, you know, tentpole movie. Yeah. Yeah. This is not the way the planet's supposed to be operating, and obviously something far beyond what they're telling us is going on. Um, I don't want to spread fear porn. In fact, I'm intrigued that more and more people are using that term, because I think I coined it some years ago. Um, the problem is that when you have an unprecedented historical event, which in the worst-case scenario projections for the United States alone, could kill up to 2 million people in the next few months. You can't just sit back and do nothing. You can't not wonder about all the disparate and, frankly, confusing and blatantly contradictory data that's coming in on this. And it's very important for people who are listening to keep their heads, source things multiply. Make sure if you're tracking something very controversial, like the COVID virus is a bioweapon, that you really have your sources down. Because this really forces us to go back to good old journalism, which is don't take anything as true unless you can get it from three independent sources. And it's very hard on the Internet to know what's independent or what's just being passed around. Mm Mm-hmm. I mean, it's 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 really phenomenal what's going on because I think, you know, Richard, I mean, Art Bell was talking about this. You've talked about this. I have mentioned this on my show that we are on the, we were on the precipice of the threshold of something massive. And, you know, my antennae were up and and I, I would talk about this and mention this. And now it's here. We we are here now. We are in the pandemic. This is the the proverbial, you know, has hit the fan. And so it's it's now it's it's circling around in the ceiling and it's going to hit the wall. And I think I think, you know, fear is what's for sale and business is really booming. It's really good because well, I think I think people are just people are before, afraid. People are scared well, because they don't know, you know, what is actually going on. It, it, it's it's like nobody knows what's going on. And I think they're not knowing is by design. I mean, when I look at the pattern of official responses to this, going back to the first report out of Wuhan, which I think was in December, I have noticed a bizarre lagging by our team, our guys, in doing everything they could to stop this. I mean, I know what the rhetoric is. All you have to do is forget the rhetoric and look at the facts. 
-hmm. There are dated events going on on the record. It's available to everybody. Thank goodness for the Internet. And what the rhetoric is coming out of Washington and the White House and all that, and what's really going on are totally separate things. There is such foot dragging that I want to propose a controversial idea. Okay. What, Xavier, if this was not accidental, if in fact this is a planned pandemic for the whole planet for some purpose, some goal, some better objective? Yep. That's that's what I feel too. That's I mean that's what what my intuition is saying is that there is something larger that we're not being told about what's going on really. How do we how can we determine what is really I mean this virus is real. It's very real. It's out there. It's in the wild, but we're not being given the entire full story. When when are we ever given the full story about anything that happens? Ever. Well, remember Ben Franklin's response to the woman after the first, uh, I guess it was the second Continental Congress, when they finally finished up the Constitution, and a woman asked her, you know, what kind of government do we have, Mr. Franklin? And he said, a republic, if you could keep it. Mm -hmm. You know, the price of a democracy, the price of this republic, speaking now from the insular position as a citizen of the United States, is to be vigilant. Because people all the time are trying to put stuff over on us. I mean, this this is not just new to the Internet. It goes back to, you know, first forms of government, power, all that thing about absolute power, et cetera, et cetera. Mm-hmm. So the, 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 the thing citizens have to do is to maintain a constant vigilance. And now, because we have these exquisite social media feedback mechanisms, if we see something we don't like, if we see something that's out of line, anomalous, doesn't make sense, we can let everybody know, which means it's a lot harder for the bad guys to slip stuff over on us, provided we go in skeptical and not buying the first story. Like, you know, this the idea this this virus was a transfer from bats to humans in a wet market in Wuhan. Mm. I know it sounds logical and plausible and all that, I don't buy it for a second. You know why? A, the only level for bioweapons military laboratory for biological warfare in all of China is only 20 miles from downtown Wuhan. You know, as Art would have done, ding, 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 ding. Right. And two, the spokesperson for the Chinese foreign ministry the other day Weeks after I speculated on the other side of midnight, could this have been an op? Could the deep state, without Trump's knowledge from here, have done this, released this virus in Wuhan to basically attack China? And is the Chinese official foreign ministry response a kind of a veiled confirmation of that model? Mm Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I mean, that's one hypothesis. I mean, more da- here, 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 here's more data. I have little or no doubt that this is a bioengineered virus that somehow got out. That seems How do clear. I know? Yeah. How do I know? Because A, Francis Boyle, Professor Francis Boyle, who literally wrote the international treaty 
on biowarfare by where the United States ostensibly got rid of its biological weapons in past treaty negotiations going back, you know, a couple of decades. He has come out and said firmly from all his information, this is a weapon that somehow escaped or, if you want to be really conspiratorial, was deliberately released. Now, obviously, you got to ask the question, why would the Chinese, if they're developing a weapon, why would they release it in their own country? And the answer, obviously, is in this scenario, they didn't. Somebody else did to make real bad times for the Chinese for even beginning to work on such an awful weapon. Now, there's also other data. There's a Harvard professor who had Chinese students who's been arrested for espionage. There's reports of a Canadian laboratory, high-level facility with Chinese immigrant you know, workers, scientists, who were, who were basically expelled by Canada because they stole things from the lab. Um, there's a lot of very murky paper trails as to where this came from. But the thing that I find most striking, if this was just a natural mutation, you'd only expect there to be one strain, right? Mm -hmm. The Chinese strain of COVID-19. With me so far? Yeah. In fact, now there are reputable papers from a variety of researchers in a variety of countries claiming that they've now detected different genetic variants in this disease. It's different in Europe than in China. It's different in the United States than in Europe or in China. And the idea of having three simultaneous, incredibly infectious and dangerous mutations of the same virus all within a few weeks just, it just doesn't make sense. This looks to be by design. So who wants the entire world to get infected with coronavirus 19? And what does it really do besides killing off a percentage of the elder population? What does it really do? Hmm. I mean, there's, there's so many, I mean, there's so many different directions and now data is coming out. It seems like the data is changing every few minutes. You know, the story is changing about what it does and who it affects. And I guess I read an article today that was that came out today that well, said well, that you, twenty you, to forty you, twenty to forty years olds were well, affected by the virus have, as well. David, you gotta have a long enough database. That's true. That's true. I mean about this. that's that's very true. Right. Uh, up yes. until up until like January, mid January, I think. This was confined to China. Then the same day that we got our patient zero, in, I guess it was uh, Washington State, the South Koreans got their patient zero in, in uh, South Korea. And the two nations began a very, very, very different set of protocols to deal with this. The South Koreans have really been able to handle this without torpedoing and, and committing suicide with their economy, the United States, no, because we had no testing, because our president Richard, two Richard, years let me, ago, let me he disbanded in. the pandemic unit of the National Security Council. We've done this to ourselves, Xavier, and my question is, why the hell have we? We're only going to know that through time, right? So 
Well, can we? Wait, 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 Richard. Depending what can upon we do? who's listening to you, we can have a leak. What can we do about this? I mean, obviously, what's going on is, as you said, fear porn. I mean, this is the status quo right now. They want everyone to be afraid, very afraid. So, how do we not bite into the fear? Because that seems to be the underlying, you know, like I said, the status quo of it. Well, without adequate testing, everybody is potentially carrying this thing without knowing it. <clears throat> Except, of course, for me, because I'm sitting in the middle of a desert and I haven't been near anybody in, in months and months. So I'm pretty sure I'm okay for the time being. But people who are involved in social interactions, you know, who go to bars, restaurants, ride subways, air, you know, the usual normal things of 21st century life, you're going to interact with an awful lot of people, and a number of those are going to be carrying this, have no symptoms, and they will give it to you. Now, if you're young and you're healthy, according to the latest information, you do get very sick. That's why they have to take these young kids, 40s, 50s, I kids young, out to the hospital and put them on ventilators in intensive care because unless they have intensive care, even young people who get this, they will die. The difference is that young people with intensive care survive statistically, and older people do not. I believe the average age of the deaths in northern uh, Italy in the Lombardy region is 80.3. And, of course, critics are, are saying, look, see, those people would have died anyway. I mean, <clears throat> that's an aberrant thought because if you have elderly people who have compromised immune systems or some kind of respiratory problem or they have diabetes, or they have cancer, or they have a heart disease, or any one of a number of factors now that mm-hmm. we know from the statistics make it more likely that if you get this, you're going to die. To say that it wasn't the COVID virus that killed them is nuts. Because if they hadn't caught the virus, they'd still be with us. And I see people, Xavier, it's shocking, who basically say, well, if we do nothing, it won't affect most of the population and we need those deaths to build up the so-called herd immunity. Richard, I mean, let's this, let's zoom out. Let's zoom out. Okay, let's. I under. I know my audience. I I understand. You know everything that you're saying right now. So what I want to do is I want to zoom out to the larger picture, and I want to talk about you know where we are headed. What could be the possible implications of what has happened? Well, are we moving into? Pieces, wait, wait, a wait a second. Hold on a second. Let me, you, let me just finish. Let me just finish my thought. Let me just hang finish on, my question. Here. No, see, no, I don't want to hang see. on. Just let me just finish what I was going to say, and then you can speak. Please don't interrupt me. Please. So all I was going to say was, you know, if we are, uh, what are the possible, you know, results of this? Are we moving into a cashless society? Are is this a mechanism of controlling people even more? Are we being invaded by aliens? I mean, what is going on? And, you know, hopefully you can answer that. Well, before we get to that, because remember, this is a very complicated story. So pieces of it need to be in sequence. Since everybody is being driven nuts with fear porn, you know, they think if they're going to get this, they're going to die. And the latest statistics are that if you're young and you get this, you can get very, very sick. And if you don't get to the hospital, yes, you could probably die. The problem is 
that if all these young people who are partying like there's no tomorrow on the beaches of Florida, you, I presume, have seen the aerial photographs, sure. right? Yeah. If they get sick and they're rushed to the hospital, they were overwhelmed. The limited hospital facilities that we have here in the United States, and that means an awful lot of people are going to die because they literally will not be able to get medical care. Right. So there are two things we need to keep in mind. This is not a disease without a cure. There is new information <clears throat> coming out of Stanford, which I was astonished last night to see actually was being touted by Fox. Hmm. There is a, there's a Stanford study. <coughs> Sorry about that. <clears throat> I'm getting hoarse. There, there's a Stanford study which shows that if people who have no symptoms but are tested positive for the virus take a drug that's been Hilarious. out in, in the public sector since 1945, mm -hmm. it's yeah. called chloroquine. Mm -hmm. It's in, a, in a, another form, it's called chloroquine. Uh, 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 I, I, I forget the rest of it, but it's on the website. Do you have that Stanford paper? If not, I will send it to you. I've read so it. I, I did come across that and I did read it. I did see it. And what they were implying was that this malaria drug that people use when they are in, when they go down to like South America or something like that, um, you know, they prescribe this drug uh, for malaria and it actually destroys the, the COVID-19 virus. It, it actually disrupts what's happening in the exactly. process of it, it, it replicating. It, 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 it disrupts its replication cycle and therefore it dies and is exactly. eliminated by the body. Yes. If you if you go and look at the paper, you'll see microscopic slides showing the virus in a petri dish with various dosages of this chloroquine malaria drug. Mm. And the final slide, it's pitch black. It's eliminated all the virus with a very small dosage taken a couple times a week. So you can take it prophylactically meaning you can get it for the doctor's prescription. Can't get it over the counter. It's got to right. be a doctor's yeah. prescription. But it's freely available here in the United States, of course, until supplies run out. Apparently, it's harder to get in other parts of the world, and I'm not quite sure why, because malaria is a major problem in, in certainly swampy, jungle, mosquito-infested parts of the planet, like Panama, Thailand, et cetera, et cetera. Right. So I'm, I'm wondering why we can still get it here, but you can't get it other places. And the good news is this is a study conducted by really reputable folks. It's not a pipe dream. It's not, you know, lost hope. If you take it before you are exposed, it will prevent percentage of the population from getting this. And if you take it after you have the symptoms, apparently it helps a lot moderate the symptoms and kill off the virus, which is exactly what you would want in the best of all possible worlds. And it's really, really, really cheap and simple to make. Okay. I mean, dosages are Perfect. pennies. pennies. So, so, so you should put that paper. We will. Because credibility is everything now on the internet. Put that paper up on your website. Point out that it's Stanford Research, a number of mainstream doctors. They would not put their reputations on the line and claim this unless it was true. Richard, 
let's 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 zoom out. What would be the larger purpose of having people shelter in place? Xavier, please, would you let me go at my own pace? You brought me on. <laughs> you asked me to do this. You have a script. I don't have a script. There's no script. What do you mean? And stop telling me to speculate about things I don't know. I mean, I'm not going to. I want to understand part. your opinion. That's I'm why I brought you on the show. I want to deal with the disease first. I want to speculate about where it, porn. where it came from second. So let me give you the second breakthrough. Are you aware of Sherry Edwards' work? You asked me about this before the show. No, I have <clears> not. I don't. It doesn't ring a bell off the top of my head okay. yet. Sherry Edwards, for the last thirty years, has been working with patients with all kinds of <clears throat> diseases and treatment protocols with people that have literally insoluble medical crises that would have died if they had not come to her, and she has fixed them. I have done now three shows, I think, with Sherry, either as the main guest on the other side of midnight or as a contributory guest with a panel of other people, and I had a, a major film actor from Hollywood who became her patient several years ago, and he was, the medical community had given up on him. They said, just go home and die. There's nothing we can do. Sherry Edwards' protocol fixed it. So what does she do? On her website, what you do is you log into her website, and I will give you this link after the show, and you can put it up on your site if you want. It's up on the other side of midnight. You log on to Sherry's website with a microphone, which has to be a broad-spectrum microphone so that it catches all the frequencies of your voice. You literally record about 30 seconds of audio. And then her computer program, <clears throat> excuse me, analyzes the sound frequencies in your voice. And in terms of her work for the last 30 years, those frequencies correspond to elements and parasites <clears throat> and nutritional deficiencies and diseases to which you are exposed at the moment you make the recording. So then what she does, she takes, that, she takes that recording and she gives you a protocol of frequencies that you listen to, <clears throat> excuse me, through headphones. And the frequencies fix what is wrong. I remember that show now. Yeah. It is stunning. And it's breakthrough. And it just needs replicatory trials. There are several healthcare workers after the first show we did who are adopting Sherry's technique. They're in touch with her. They are exposing their own patients to these protocols. People who have severe respiratory problems so we can see if they get better quickly. And they're getting better quickly. Now, they don't have COVID. But COVID is a, is a, a coronavirus. It's one of the family of viruses, some of which produce the common cold. So if you test this on one illness or two illnesses or three, the likelihood is because the illness itself is systemic to this idea, this hypothesis that it's really about modulating frequencies in the so-called torsion field. Mm -hmm. But that's what the body really is doing when it takes supplements or takes food or takes, you know, ingests nutrients. It's really rearranging your frequency dynamics within your body and you can do it either with material stuff molecules 
or you can do it by directed frequencies. I know this sounds radically, radically like like magic. No, it's not. It's really advanced science. And again, we're trying to build up a database of patients with logs, with files, with you know contact information. So, I mean, we had one woman who literally had gone to her doctor the day before, and she found that she literally had the flu document the day after she went through this protocol and her symptoms were gone in 10 minutes and then went back to the doctor and he said, where'd the flu go? You should have been in bed for two weeks. So we're we're working up a list of people for whom this works. And the coronavirus is no different the other virus. It attaches to, you know, your, your cells the same way. It needs receptors. It needs binding agents. It needs a whole life cycle to replicate and overwhelm you and kill you. If you can interrupt that cycle with frequencies, can you imagine people all over the world who are desperate for hope now? All they do is use their social media and their microphones and their headsets and they dial into her website, and they can become immune. And if they do catch it, they can be cured by an appropriate um, playback of the right frequencies. So, you know, it it does seem that there are mechanisms of fighting this that are holistic, and it, it, it's really interesting because I remember this rash of deaths that of holistic doctors. Do you remember this, Richard? This happened. Mm-hmm. I mean, this was happening and About it was 10 bizarre. 15 years ago, there was a huge bunch of microbiologists who suddenly wound up dying all over the planet. So and it looked incredibly suspicious. Like somebody didn't want these smart guys and women around when something was going down. So, you know, I, I'm curious to know, do you think, I, I know you've studied, uh, the Kali Yuga, you know, cycles and the span of them and what happens in them. You've done shows on them, which I, I've loved. Um, are we nearing the end cycle of a Kali Yuga? Are we changing cycles? Well, as you know, I've had some guests on, including Vedic experts from India who claim that the Kali Yuga cycle ends in 2025. I'm a little bit skeptical of such a precise date because there's been such controversies over the antiquity of the Kali Yugas themselves, not the Kali Yugas, the Yuga cycles themselves, the, you know, the ancient Vedic texts, the equivocation of names and numbers and years and assigning eras a certain span of time. Um, but what I can say is if you just look around the planet, and you look at the measurements that I did with Robin all over the world with the Akatron, the physics is unquestionably changing, dramatic. And my feeling is it's correlated with the end of the processional cycle, the so-called you know, 2012 syndrome, the whole Mayan calendar thing. Mm-hmm. Except when Robin and I went to uh, Chichen Itza, and I was able to measure... Uh, the uh, Kali Yuga, uh, not the Kali Yuga, the um, uh, frequencies of the Kukla Khan Pyramid, it was then that I realized that probably the 2012 date was wrong 
because the original archaeologists back in the 1940s who tried to translate the stelae from the Mayan long count to adjust it to be in sync with the Gregorian calendar, I think they messed up by three or four years. And which means that 2012 really didn't happen until the transition between 2016 and 2017. That's the real end of the Mayan calendar as my astronomical recomputation of that calendrical translation would have it. And lo and behold, the world radically changed between 2016 and 2017. Did it not? It did. I mean, there have been several cycles where it seems like the world as we knew it you know, has changed radically, but not like this, not quite like this, ever recorded, unprecedented. You know, so I, I, I'm curious, you know, what you think, Richard, of what could be the possible direction of where is this going? Where is this leading towards without, without injecting any fear porn? You know, I just, I'm just curious to know your perspective. You've talked to so many leading scientists, researchers, authors, and, you know, just we're brainstorming live on air. Well, again, I don't want to hype the fear porn because fear paralyzes. People can't think when they're in panic. Nobody's hyping any fear porn whatsoever. That is not the objective of this conversation. I'm trying well, to quell the fear have, porn. Have, have you looked at how people are just freaking out because they have to stay inside for a couple of weeks? It's I mean, going to be longer I, than I a couple weeks. Here, I live, you know, but even if it's six weeks or eight weeks or 18 months, who cares? We have never been more connected to each other by all these technological means than we have been before. I mean, we've got the internet, we've got TikTok, we've got Twitter, we've got Skype, we've got Zoom, we've got <clears throat> Instagram. I mean, I have seen, and I know you've seen this a million times, you go to a restaurant, right? And you see a table with four people and they're out for dinner and you say, oh, isn't that nice? And they're all sitting there within two feet of each other, staring down at these stupid things in their hands. With their phones. So they're not even talking to So why are they freaking out that they can only talk to each other for a few weeks, maybe, by going through Instagram or Skype or whatever, as opposed to being face-to-face in a, in a restaurant? That that will keep their grandparents alive, that will keep the, the old folks down the street alive. In other words, are we so selfish now that with this incredible cornucopia of technological wonders. I'm not talking about the economics. That's a, that's a different thing. People having to stay home without jobs is a horrible thing. Thank God there are movements going on in Washington to get money to people. I'm just talking about people who I hear emotionally freaking out that they have to be, they don't even have to stay inside because you can go outside for walks, you can walk the dog, you can go to this grocery store. You just can't hang out like those idiots in Florida and contaminate everybody to take it to people who we now know are going to die if they get this without treatment. I agree with you completely. It's it's like a petri dish, and so it just it shows it shows a, a huge disrespect to 
you know, just what's going on in other people, the space of other people. And it's quite offensive to see behavior like that when everyone else is, you know, doing their best to follow, you know, what we're being told and and the rules. We're staying inside. And, you know, then other people are kind of just on the beach. Well, if if, if you've listened to my show a lot. I do. you have. Every weekend. And you you listen to me talk about the physics on the other side of it. Let's talk about that. You know. You know that one of the mantras that I've been saying now for years, basically impelled by this change of the physics, which affects not only beagles and begonias, as you know, Sagan would have said, but mm-hmm. human beings, consciousness, astrophysics, geology, the weather. This physics modulates everything. Right. If it's changing, it's going to affect consciousness. And the effect I've seen on consciousness overwhelmingly over and over and over again for the last several years now, is the good are getting better and the bad are getting worse. All these self-involved, narcissistic idiots parading around on the beaches in Florida, when Florida is a state full of seniors. Think of it. You can't go anywhere in Florida without bumping into a senior citizen. Are these people that stupid that they want to just kill them all off? Or don't they believe it? And the reason they don't believe it is because politically, there's almost one half of the political spectrum, which has been saying for weeks now, it's a hoax. It's just, you know, it's just fake media. It's just those folks lying again. And there are people who have believed this. And now those folks have changed their tune. And I was very happy to see that Laura Ingram and Sean Hannity on Fox last night talked about this Stanford study as a as an antidote to the awful fear porn they've been spreading by basically claiming it's all nothing, just, you know, run your daily life as if there's nothing going on, because that, of course, can kill the very people that you love. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, there was, there was a doctor, Dr. Sarah Conrath, and she did uh, an ep- uh, a research study on this uh, empathy and narcissism and the the changes in it and how it used to be that most people were empathetic and they would relate with others and there was a low level of narcissism and then it flipped and now most people are narcissistic they sort of gravitate towards narcissism and there's less people that are em- empathetic are we sure that's true or is it observational selection <clears throat> because depending upon what media you use to find your sample. You can get different populations in the same population that will maybe kind of tend toward that. Remember, the good are getting bad, and the, and the, the bad are getting worse, and the good are getting better. It's just I'm seeing these social changes going on around us at such speed, and we're finding simultaneously we have horrible news and really great news in this in. You know, the same broadcast. It's like we're being given choices. Which path are we going to follow? Despair or hope? And there's real hope out there. You're saying that it's it's possible for us to choose which path we decide to select based on yeah. what we think and the, mm-hmm. the vibration that we're resonating at. Yep, yep. So if we choose the path of you know, peace and harmony and those things, if we select and community, that consciously. But community, but community in a safe way, 
Because right now, you know, it's, uh, I mean, when Robin and I, and of course, you know, I miss her desperately because she died. My condolences. She would be so up to her eyebrows helping people if she was here and all of this. I mean, a worldwide pandemic that she could be useful to help, you know, fix. But we went to um, Central America and we were sitting at a little restaurant where we were measuring pizza and pizza. And our whole crew was there, you know, the NBC crew. And we noticed our producer was sitting at a table, you know, in this little restaurant, a couple tables over, <clears throat> all by herself. She had her laptop open on the, on the table and she had a set up for dinner for one. And we wanted to invite her over to our table, you know, because, you know, community. <clears throat> and she looked up and she smiled and she says, no, I'm having dinner with my significant other. And I looked at the screen and there he was on Skype in New York. And here we are in the middle of Guatemala in a jungle. And they were having dinner together via the Internet. And I say to myself, why can't people understand how incredibly blessed we are? We can see each of our loved ones for this period that we don't want to infect, but we can talk to them, we can communicate, we can share things. I mean, I would give anything if I could do a Skype call with Robin right now. I'm so sorry, man. I mean, I I remember that episode. I remember when she passed and it's um, been a year. It doesn't seem like a year. It seems like, but if I could just see her. So everybody out there, calm down. You can see the people you love. This too will pass. This is not the end of everything and the end of civilization and all that fear porn. This is a transition. For instance, I'll give you an example. You want to hear a positive side to this? Please. So many corporations now realize, as my old friend Arthur C. Clarke told me 30 years ago, he said to me, remember, this is the dark age of 30 years ago. He said, Dick, anybody who commutes more than 30 seconds from office to home is a fool. And now, of course, we have all of these corporations with huge resources setting up the mechanisms <clears throat> so that parents can be parenting their kids at home, keeping them safe, doing productive jobs via Skype or Zoom or whatever, and still interact with each other, but not infect the community and therefore implicate, you know, terrible things for civilization as a whole. It's going to change, I think, when we get through this, I think we're going to be better as a culture because we're going to value more the personal contact that we can't have right now. Mm -hmm. And we're going to decide we're going to use that in social situations where personal contact is everything. Yes. As opposed to where it's just because we've always done it that way and the technology didn't let us do it any other way. And now the telecommuting technology is there so that we can restructure time so that it's more human. This, I think, is going to wind up with making society, certainly Western society, more human in that the personal needs of family and friends and personal time is going to become more valued 
as we realize what we've lost temporarily because it's deleterious if we're so selfish that we go out and try to hug everybody. Yeah. I mean, I was, I was just thinking that actually, I was thinking about how much we take for granted the things that are right in front of us. And now, you know, that they're no longer right in front of us, no longer that we have access to them directly. And I was at the grocery store the other day, Richard, and you know, it, it, it really struck me how easy we have things and how much I appreciate just small things, how meaningful it is just to be able to go to the grocery store in a normal way, you know? Yeah. And as you said, Richard, please, please, as you said at the, the beginning of the program, you know, um, you interrupt my, my, you interrupted my thought pattern. (laughs) (laughs) You, You got me. What, you know, like I just, my point being was just that, you know, we, we've, we've been so wired to be this way. And I, I think you know, what you said at the beginning where, you know, this is not normal for a planet to endure. I mean, why, why do you think this is occurring then, Richard? I mean, do you think? Well, one of the possibilities, and again, without hyping the fear porn side of this. Of course, of course. I've been watching, obviously, the president. Our, our president is is not normal. I think everybody would agree that he is not normal. <clears throat> so I watch very carefully because I keep saying to myself, how can someone achieving that position wind up doing, whenever he's presented with a choice, everything wrong? And I know there's a lot of Trump people out there screaming at the you know radio right now, saying, "Oh my God, he's an anti." No, I'm just watching. Someone do everything. Like, for instance, you say to media on record months, it's a hoax. It's all going to go away. It's going to be like a miracle. It will never have happened and that kind of thing. It's on record. You can't take the words back because you said them. And then yesterday you come out and say, well, I always thought this was a pandemic long before uh, the World Health Organization called it a pandemic. No, you didn't. You said it was a hoax. So we're living through this whiplash where what we hear from officials yesterday is not the same thing they're saying today. And again, this, I believe, is endemic to this bizarre time in the physics, in the processional cycle, where things just go cattywampus. It's almost like, Xavier, half of the population can't talk to the other half of the population. They're talking mm-hmm. past them. They're talking through them, but they're not talking with them. It's like they're saying the same words, but each side, to them, those words mean something radically different. Mm-hmm. And I'm looking at this, and this has been going on now for at least three years, and I'm saying, I wonder if this is another symptom of this transition between Vedas, mm-hmm. between the cycles, the yuga cycles, because during those times, everything gets very noisy and confused and contradictory. It's almost like dissonant frequencies blasting you, like think fingernails on a blackboard compared to a Gregorian chant. One is pleasurable, the other is, ah, you can't stand them. Dissonant frequencies. Right. So think back to your Western Bible. 
remember the first time God looked down and decided that he didn't like what was going on and wanted to destroy humanity? What happened as a result of that intervention by God in the Western Bible? Like plagues, right? I mean, it was... And then afterwards... Yeah, it was cataclysms. And afterwards... The flood. They could not communicate. Oh, okay. They were of divided language. I'm beginning to think that that ancient, ancient cautionary tale is applying not to, you know, like Esperanto or English or Sumerian or Akkadian or whatever. I'm thinking it applies to the idea that even if people speak the same language, at some point in terms of consciousness, they're not communicating. And that's what that biblical reference is telling us. And it's connected to major terrestrial changes. Is it not? In the Bible. Is that what we're going through? Is Could this be. a is this a kind of a signal that something is coming? It's physical, and this is only a prelude to a lot more complexity and problems up ahead. Oh my! Again, I don't know, but I'm just raising this as a possibility because, again, while we have time, there are things we could be doing that we're not doing now. And we need to do them as a community, but we need to do them socially distancing ourselves physically. I mean, imagine if this happened and we didn't have all this technology. That's true. That's a good point. Imagine if you were really isolated and you couldn't see people for weeks and there were no such things as delivery services, no such things as communications that would allow you to talk to your great-grandmother on the other side of the planet and see her. In real time, or have dinner with someone 2,000 miles away, even though they couldn't be at the same table. Richard, would it be okay if we talk a bit about, you know, the, the, Oumuamua and these space Oh, it's funny you should bring that up. I really want to connect that, it all together. Because that leads directly into my next speculation. I want to clearly label this as a speculation. Okay. I've been looking at the trend curve since Trump was elected of the things he's done as opposed to the things he said. But one of the big recurring themes that he's both talked about and then accomplished was the creation of this whole new military uh, service, the so-called Space Force. Right. Is it possible the Space Force is part of this COVID-19 equation? Is it possible that this has not been developed by the U.S. or the Chinese or the Russians or the Indians or the PLO or the Israelis or anybody down here? Suppose Mm. this virus is coming to us from upstairs. Wow. And let me give you a potential enemy. Remember Richard Dolan? Ever had Richard Dolan on your show? No. no, no, Oh, please continue. Please continue. Richard Dolan is the originator of the so-called breakaway civilization hypothesis. Yes. Uh, Yes, 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 yes. 
which is that after World War II, the Germans, with their incredibly advanced R&D into limitless energy, anti-gravity propulsion, uh, biomedical immortality, a whole right. bunch of other top-secret stuff that Hitler and his guys were into. Mm-hmm. They took all that and they left, they left Earth. They became the 800-pound gorilla. The old joke was the 800-pound gorilla asleep anywhere it wants to. Well, where does <laughs> a breakaway civilization with hyperdimensional physics and torsion field technology sleep? Anywhere in the solar system it wants to. And wow. they've been developing separately according to several lines of evidence. I mean, you've heard these stories over and over and over again about the secret space program. Well, there's more than one. There's the breakaways out there. There's the corporate secret black ops groups down here. And there's been this tension building between them for 70 years. Is it possible the breakaways have decided it's time to move in on Earth. And this virus is a deliberate effort to begin to cull terrestrial populations, starting with the folks the Nazis loved to kill off the elderly first. Hmm. You wanted speculation. Okay, okay. We're getting somewhere now. I mean, I... It's this is what I love about you, Richard. I mean, this is this is the the mind food. I know that we're just speculating, we're just playing a thought game. But I mean, that's that's what the best thing is about you is that you allow you know my mind to go into a place where you know I wouldn't originally have taken it. You know what I mean? So the space force connecting that those two things together, I, I don't I don't think I've heard anyone else mention well, if that. If we have an enemy out there, you're gonna need Marines and other folks to to fight them. It's obvious. Is this a sucker punch by the bad guys because they see what Trump et al are, are building, which would be a counterforce from the planet that could basically hold our own and protect the planet against them. Remember, Earth is the only inhabitable planet in the whole solar system. It's a blue jewel. Imagine if you want to preserve. Here's another wild speculation. Hmm. Have you noticed the amount of carbon emissions on the planet in the last two months? Ah, yeah, it's been decreasing. Radically. Like nothing that Dane Wigington and the other, you know, uh, climate change researchers have been looking at has happened politically compared to this. You can look now on the satellite imagery and places like northern Italy that are covered in smog are now crystal clear. The yeah. porpoises and the swans have returned to the canals the in Venice. Yeah. The, exactly, yes. It's like when you see that gross hydrocarbon industrial civilization, when you curtail it, the earth desperately tries to return to homeostasis, to normal to a more benign and, and life-giving environment, we just need to give her half a chance? Yes. Is it possible that there's some mad genius somewhere, and we won't name any names, but let's say they realize that if they inserted this into the global population, given its specific characteristics, and we'll go back to that in a minute, 
it would have the effect that everybody would have to quarantine, governments would have to shut down, the economy would have to be brought to a halt for the time being, and the planet given a chance to recover yes. from the hydrocarbon. And again, this is one of those awful Hobson's choices where, in this scenario, someone said, okay, for this to work, we're going to save X number of billion people because we're going to save the planet, but a certain number of millions of people because of the virus are going to die. Did someone make that horrible, awful, agonizing choice because they see the stark problem of the planet itself dying unless Western hydrocarbon civilization is given other options, presented socially with other possibilities? For instance, if, as we were saying earlier, wanted again the implications of this, if you looked earlier and said, okay, all of this not going to stores, restaurants, whatever, when things are back to normal, suppose corporate America decides that having millions of people commuting to offices each day, burning how many million gallons of gasoline on the road, sitting like in L.A. in the world's largest parking lot, mm-hmm. is not useful for the environment. And it's more cost-effective to have people telecommuting from home in a big way, those who basically just handle information. Mm-hmm. It's one thing if you're, you know, working for Ford or Chrysler or GM, because they just closed their plants because you have, can't make cars yet without people. Robots eventually will be able to make an entire car, but fortunately for the time being, there's still stuff that people can do so they have jobs. Which, of course, gets us back to the whole idea of a universal basic income. Andrew Yang, Mitt Romney picking up on that the other day and actually proposing as a Republican the government send everybody a check for $1,000 or $2,000 a month until this crisis passes. There are some very positive things, Xavier, that could come out of this. The only problem is if someone designed this to produce those at the expense of the numbers now would be about 2 million deaths in the United States among seniors alone. Yeah. What kind of price are we willing ethically to pay for our own narcissistic greed where we can't transition to alternative technologies while we have time unless we are forced to? We and this to. is forcing us to. I mean, we have to do this now, right? And I mean, well, it, we now see what the benefits are if we don't all drive on the roads every day and sit there for two hours trying to get to a stupid office. But will humanity going learn? Arthur's, going back to Arthur's famous statement. You still with me? Mm-hmm. So, you know, I, I love the trajectory that that you're talking about. And, you know, I, I can hope that humanity learns from this. And I mean, there, there have been so many guests that you've had on the show, a couple, I don't remember their names offhand, but there was a guest that was working on, you know, you've, you've, you've touched on free energy devices and harnessing this technology. And every single time there seems to be this point that these people get to where they're like, Oh, well, I would never patent this because if I did, I would put myself in danger. Yep. 
I mean, well, why? there are folks now that are working out there, and they actually, I've, I've seen one technology which we're looking at helping, which actually does have a U.S. patent, but it needs a market. And now, because of this shattering change in our entire global economy, one of the again, one of the positive things that can come out of this is people more willing to look outside the box for technologies which are life-giving and life-sustaining, even if they're taboo. Is it possible that we exist in a simulation, Richard? Well, if we did, how would we know? What would be your clues? Um, if I saw you know, the same sort of code that we use to code things in a programming language. I saw that same type of code in the math that makes up our reality. Perhaps there would be a, you know, correlation, but I'm not sure if it would be a causation. Yeah, that's always been the problem that we've had years looking at this whole 19.5 signature thing. The idea that you can describe tetrahedron and have rotating planets and energy is coming up uh, and it's coming to us by means of hyperspace. That could all be an elegant computer algorithmic coding that's kind of like a clue that we're not looking at reality. We're looking at a computer simulation. I mean, that's one of the possibilities that over and over again, recurrence of 19.5 just throughout the universe could be telling us that, in fact, our universe was designed and we're sitting on somebody's desktop, a la a few of those really interesting programs in Star Trek The Next Generation. Explain explain what 19.5 is to the listeners that might not know. I thought your listeners... It's not that deep. intellectual background knew about that. Okay. (laughs) If you take a planet, let's say the Earth, or Jupiter, and you examine it carefully, you'll see that the largest upwellings of energy, and on Earth it manifests itself as hot lava, and on Jupiter it manifests itself as a convective upwelling of hot gases, occurs at 19.5 north and south on planets all across the solar system. All they have to do is have mass and rotate. And even on, on Neptune, when the uh, uh, Voyager spacecraft got there, flew by in 1989, we discovered to our amazement there was a dark spot on Neptune. And I actually posted a paper before NASA had come out with their numbers, predicting that the spot that the spacecraft saw from millions of miles away was going to be at 19.5. And lo and behold, it was. Hmm. Science is nothing if it's not prediction. So if this pattern of the 19.5 signature is telling us something about a universe that's been designed with certain parameters, then when you find this example again and again and again, you have to ask yourself, is it the universe doing it, or is it humans here on Earth trying to imitate a universal pattern to make things happen? And that gets us back to the idea of are we living in a design simulation where someone has given us this numeric clue that in fact ultimately we are living in a simulation. Hmm. 
And what about what about this hyperdimensional physics? You bring it up a lot. I mean, how, how can we connect the dots there? Because I mean, there there's a lot of this in play. I mean, it's it's always in play through intention. You know, where you direct your attention, but also could there be a way to harness it? I mean, is I mean, is is all the fear and panic that we're generating feeding? You know, something that's out there that could be hyperdimensionally active. Okay, there is a myth going on that perpetual motion machines cannot exist, period. They're all fake news. They're all lies. They're all, you know, the imagination of their inventors who are a bit deluded. And the answer, of course, is that's not true. In order for you to get energy from nowhere, there needs to be another source. That's all. You just Uh have to figure out a way to either, in nature... Or through a technology, open a gate between our three-dimensional reality and a higher dimensional invisible reality which surrounds our reality and modulates it. And that's where the whole hyperdimensional physics model comes in. Like a zero because point. Well, that's one of the terms. I prefer the ether or the torsion field because... These are frequency analog waves that are interacting. They're not digital data bits. And that whole analog world is where the energy transfers take place. I mean, give me an example. We send a spacecraft to Pluto, right, which is this little ice ball sitting 4 billion miles from the sun, where on a good day, the temperature is never above 300 below zero Fahrenheit, which is the freezing liquefaction point of uh, liquid nitrogen. Mm -hmm. And what do we find as we fly by Pluto? We find a world absolutely amazingly geologically active with geysers and with an atmosphere and sluggishly moving pools of liquid nitrogen and something like, uh, you know, geology, active geology, on a world which is smaller than the moon, located four billion miles from the center of energy and light, the sun. And it's this dynamic world, which is circled by five objects, five moons, that also are not obeying normal celestial mechanics rules when NASA was able to take a close look, look at them. And I look at the Pluto system, Xavier, and I say, obviously, this was a system designed by our great, 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 great ancestors before the solar system went to hell in a handbasket. And it was designed to produce <clears throat> an example of how hyperdimensional physics literally could keep a world alive. Hmm. Because the interaction among the five so-called moons Mm -hmm. of Pluto, including Charon. And Charon itself, in the hyperdimensional model, is ducting enough energy into Pluto right now Mm -hmm. to keep it geologically active. Hmm. And that's what the mainstream NASA guys are never going to tell you. In fact, I've had people planted in audiences when Alan Stern does these presentations on on the Pluto mission, 
mm-hmm. you know, the New Horizons mission, and they deliberately ask him, Dr. Stern, where is the energy coming from to drive what we're seeing going on on Pluto right now? Mm-hmm. And every time he's asked this question, he clams up and leaves the stage. He won't answer it. <laughs> he can't answer it because that will open the doorway to the unseen physics we're never supposed to know about, which may come out of the woodwork because of this current coronavirus calamity. Hmm. I mean, we can hope so. I mean, we can we can hope. Well, that. we can also try to force the river. We can push it like mad, which I'm doing with the other sign of midnight. I'm going to do at least maybe one show devoted partially each weekend to various aspects of this virus story, this narrative, including the developing work of Sherry and her colleagues and this resonance protocol that for someone who has the coronavirus, they're exposed for a few minutes to these frequencies, they get better. And one of her practitioners is working with a woman in Milan in northern Italy, remotely. Because remember, the whole Bell non-locality theorem also plays into this. If, it, if it's truly hyperdimensional, it's truly ether, you don't need to even be in the same room to get this to work. You can do this anywhere. It's kind of like remote viewing, except it's remote healing. Mm-hmm. And that's what they're working on, and we will be presenting the results of those experiments in the coming days and weeks. We Very must cool. provide people with real hope based on the real physics of how to deal with this and a whole bunch of other planetary problems we have tonight. I mean, people are going to have so much time to explore these other areas of life where, as before, you know, they were working these nine-to-five jobs and they come home, they're exhausted, they have to deal with their yes. kids, they have to make dinner. Now they yes. have time to explore this stuff truly and, and to get to know their kids. And hopefully there's a stimulus a package and we get paid. I mean, I remember our family growing up. It was back in the 60s. We would all get together and we would, you know, fix dinner and we'd bring it in on trays and we'd sit on the couch and we'd all watch Maverick together or The Twilight Zone or The Alaskans or any one of a number of these shows. It was a communal family experience and during the commercials we would talk to each other about what was going on in the show mm-hmm. we would socialize we would interact we had a time because of course in those days you know television was live and you didn't record it so you either would be there or be square can you imagine all of the binge watching that with everything i mean look at the choices we've got look at the big screens look at the stereo systems look at the you know, delivery services, we can get through this, folks. This is not the worst thing that ever happened, provided the economics are being watched. And there are two bills now going through the Congress that are going to make a lot of people whole and are also going to work a long way toward transforming the economics of being the low man on the totem pole, i.e. the worker. Mm-hmm. And it's all being occasioned by this stupid virus. Doesn't it make you think maybe somebody has released this by design? That's my first thought, actually. 
I've always wanted to ask you, Richard, about the the myth of Superman. Um, you, oh, one of my favorite myths. Yes, you talk. I mean, you talked about it a little bit on the show, your show, but I, I haven't heard you bring it up again since that. And I, I think you were going to do an episode on it, but you never really did. That I that I recall that I know. Well, I'm of. I'm 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 pursuing the right person, uh, oh, the okay. guy that literally wrote the book, and I can't I haven't been able to track him down yet. But if I don't get him, I'll get someone else. But to me, the whole Superman myth, which of course exploded on this nation, you remember when? No. Nineteen thirty-nine. Hmm. Twice nineteen point five. I see. And what are the elements of the Superman myth? He's powered by the sun. Distant planet, super advanced civilization, who themselves up, sends refugee to Earth to basically keep Earth from doing the same thing. Now we look at our work in the solar system. What do we find from NASA and Russian and Chinese and Japanese and Indian and other spacecraft data. The remains of an ancient civilization based on a planet where there are now asteroids which blew itself up, which sent refugees to Earth to keep it from happening again. See where I'm going? Mm-hmm. Yeah. So so we are all the, the supermen and women. Yes! And our powers go up and down with changes in the physics. Can you imagine at the right time in the Yuga cycles, if instead of having to build a machine to keep yourself warm, you could literally just think yourself warm and mm-hmm. duct in energy from the ether and completely maintain a non-entropic environment around you just by mental and consciousness uh, technique. That would be amazing. Yeah. Well, we're seeing in Sherry's work how people think about this virus and the environment, the frequency environment they're exposed to, changes its effect on them. It goes away. Hmm. And that's at the bottom of the cycle. Can you imagine if we're coming to a transition, if this really is the end of the Kali Yuga and the beginning of, I forget what the next cycle is, we're going to be seeing, as Wilcox has said, David Wilcox, all kinds of things that look to be miracles, but they're not because they're just part of the physics which is coming back in tune so that we can live on Earth the way we were intended to live? Wouldn't that be something? Again, this is not just speculation. It's amenable to experiment. We can set. I mean, I'm sitting here literally talking to you, and on the other side of the room, I have one of Charlie Zisa's pyramids that we talked about on the show a few weeks ago that amplifies the physics. It's just like a wireframe diagram of a snow, a very tall, uh, tippy-toppy, skinny pyramid kind of like the Meru ah, pyramids yeah. in Africa. I've got it sitting here in the uh, in the living room, and I've got a very sick house plant sitting in the middle of it so I can test what the effect is 
of this amplified energy on the biology of this sick little plant. Is it working? I don't know. I just set it up last night. You know, okay. I know that I sat in it for about 45 minutes and I felt very strange for the rest of the evening. And I slept like a baby last night. So, I have not, since Robin died, I've not slept, you know, much at all. And I had my first really good night's sleep. And the reason is that if this pyramid works the way we think it is, not only does it do things when you're inside it, but it has a positive effect on the environment around it for like 10 or 20 feet. Richard, explain explain the pyramid structure to the people that don't don't know what you're talking about, please. Well, you know what a pyramid looks like, right? Sure. Four-sided, four corners. You can have four-sided pyramids. You can have three-sided pyramids called tetrahedrons. It turns out in the physics, if you actually measure the energy dynamics of stuff going on in pyramids, the very pyramidal shape plus what they're made out of, the, the, the actual material. Mm-hmm. In, in plastic pyramids, we're talking, you know, limestone, calcium carbonate. Mm-hmm. That material assembled all in one place with that geometry interacts with the ether, with the streaming torsion field in a way that amplifies the effects of the field on materials either within the pyramid or in their proximity. It's amazing. Isn't it? It's a solid state, super 21st century advanced science and technology coming to us from thousands of years ago. <laughs> right. My cultures, well, even then they didn't know, I don't think, how it worked. I think it was handed down to them from the legacy cultures, i.e. Atlantis, that kind of thing. And that gets back to, have we had planetary wars before where we have been so kicked back to the Stone Age that we don't remember almost anything about how light used to be before the fall. Mm-hmm. Think about it. The fall. Is the fall not just you know, Adam and Eve being kicked out of the Garden of Eden, but actually 66 million years ago when the last extraordinarily advanced epic of high civilization in this solar system was destroyed by an interplanetary super war, which wound up literally destroying one of the planets. Mm -hmm. And we're living in a broken solar system, a broken physics as a result, which has not been fixed, which I'm very curious about, why hasn't it been fixed, and which only comes back into what you consider to be a kind of a human-like phasing condition, maybe once every few thousand years as the yuga cycles change via precession. So if, if the Egyptian pyramids were some sort of terrestrial marker, then what would be... You wait, know, wait, what, what do you mean by marker? Marker as in a point in which the pyramids are placed to where I was going to go was to sort of stave off some sort of uh, other event. I mean, if, if the pyramid creates this sort of energy structure automatically by it through its shape, then I mean, what would be the point of building a massive, huge, huge one out of granite? 
Well, you don't build them out of granite. You build the interior chambers out of granite, but you build the bulk of the pyramid out of limestone. Limestone. Because cal- calcium carbonate, if you actually look at the molecule, calcium carbonate, the crystal, do you know that geometrically it has exactly the same shape as the Great Pyramid itself? Oh, no. I had no idea. Whoever, Stan Tennant found this out. Whoever built the pyramid at Giza with the 51, 58, minute angle that's the exact geometry angle of the material the limestone blocks the pyramids built out of hmm. why because calcium carbonate is a hyperdimensionally active material and if you want to build a huge solid state machine to amplify that physics you build it in the same geometry because you get the same resonant frequencies wow And I think, based on the work of Charles, uh, whose work I cannot uh, recommend highly enough, you probably should get a link to his website. um, uh, Say his last name, please. Charles Charles Zies. Z-I-E-S-E. Pronounced Zies. Okay. And he's got a a website, I think it's called Star Pyramids or something like that. Mm -hmm. Anyway, what he discovered, with a little help from his friends like me, was that the pyramids over time seem to have geometrically changed from the kind of squat ones we see in Egypt to the tall, skinny ones we see just south of Egypt. The, the so-called uh, uh, Meru pyramids. Okay, what would be the point of that? Ah, no pun if intended. you're changing geometry, and geometry is merely a solid-state reflection of frequency, then you're changing the geometry because you need to keep your solid-state frequency correlation in resonance with changes in the field. And there are several of these pyramids in um, south of Egypt there, in those nations of, of, what's the name of that one, the they're not called Meru. I prefer the name of them. I, I, I actually have the picture up on the Enterprise website and on the other side of Midnight website. But you can see side by side, taking this stunning panorama by the National Geographic, that these pyramids over time dramatically and drastically change in their geometry. And several of them, you can see they built them up in the, in the you know, classic Egyptian style and then halfway through building them, they change the angle. So the top of the pyramid has a different geometry than the base. The same as the red pyramid in Egypt itself. You're familiar with that one, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. The one it's called the Bed Pyramid. Mm-hmm. It rises up at a certain angle, then it changes angle. Huh. And the, the classic interpretation has been, well, the guys were trying to build a pyramid. They realized once they built it, that they got higher and higher. It was too steep. It was going to collapse. So they changed the angle so it wouldn't collapse. That's the mainstream explanation for what we're seeing. And I think it's totally wrong. I think because it takes a lot of years to build a pyramid, these legacy civilizations were imitating this ancient science and physics 
they they knew about it through their sacred text, but they didn't have you know the materials except for rock and stone and granite and limestone to do this out of. So they used what they had at hand. Okay, and as they were building these pyramids, the physics changed, and they had to change the corresponding geometry of the pyramid they were building. Otherwise, it wouldn't work. It's about frequency matching. It's all about resonance. Going back to Sherry Edwards' work. Wow. I mean, that's that's a good point to pause and let you know what the time is. We've got about five minutes left, Richard. Okay. So, you know, I, I want to give you a chance to wrap this together in your own way. And, you know, perhaps, you know, mention something to the people who are, you know, listening, who are going to listen to this. Uh, we'll include, you know, your website. We'll, I'll give you a chance to do that. But, you know, is, is there a message that you want to give to people that, that are going to be hearing this, this episode? Yeah, I think we're based, we're, we're poised on the edge of a, of a cascade of stunning, positive revolution. And whether it's by design or it's just because that's the way the cookie's crumbling, we're being a chance, given a chance now as a planetary civilization to kind of look around and take stock of a whole bunch of things we automatically have been doing, like social programming or inherited habits, bad habits. This is giving us a pause to make choices. It's ultimately all about choice. We have a choice now. We can decide when we come through this, either with the treatments or with Sherry's frequencies or the development of a vaccine or whatever, we're going to get through this. Mm -hmm. And culturally and in terms of government, they're going to make money available. They're going to print money like there was no tomorrow. It's going to get us through this. What kind of a society do we want on the other side. I mean, it's kind of like the title of my show, The Other Side of Midnight. When we get to the other side of midnight in this dark hour, what kind of sunrise do we want to have? Do we want to commute just to mindlessly work where we can do that from home? Or do we want to only commute to meet with friends, with family, to take in wonderful experiences like you know, restaurants, theme parks, natural wonders, the Grand Canyon. Uh, one of my friends just before they closed the border between Canada and uh, the United States was able to take his family to the Grand Canyon, blew his kids' minds. This may give us, Xavier, the pause to think about the choices. Remember, it's all about ultimately choice, the choices of what want to do next and we need to make the choices a good one i love it richard i mean i can't recommend the other side of midnight more and more highly and uh, if you're on the chat server in the community that we have you know i i post a link to the show whenever it's live but it's live on saturdays and sundays and i have an alarm set on my phone <laughs> Yeah, nine nine o'clock Pacific on Saturday and Sunday night. 
midnight Eastern. And today, such an auspicious day, Richard, to have you on the show. It, tonight is the Vernal Equinox. And so well, happy, that's right, it is, yes. Happy Vernal Equinox. And it's spring. It is spring. Spring has sprung. By the way, uh, on Sunday night, this coming weekend, I'm having Sean uh, Stone on as my guest. Oh, nice. And Sean Stone, if you don't remember, folks, is uh, Oliver Stone's son. And obviously, I'm going to be asking Sean about his great director father's agendas, information sources, uh, advanced warnings, et cetera, et cetera. So you might want to tune in Sunday night for the other side of it. Very good. Uh, give the website one more time, Richard, please. TheOtherSideOfMidnight.com Guys, you heard it here, TheOtherSideOfMidnight.com My guest, Richard C. Hoagland. I mean, what an incredible show, ladies and gentlemen. Really hope you got a chance to hear the whole thing. I mean, it's a, it's a really interesting time for our society, our civilization. So conversations like this, I think, are so crucial. I cannot recommend The Other Side of Midnight more highly. I mean, what Richard is doing over there is truly amazing, and he really does vet his guests, and it's it stands as my favorite show. It's my favorite show, not being paid to say this. Thank you guys so much for being here. I know... We are in some dark times right now. People are scared. People are afraid. We're going to get through it. Thank you guys so much for listening. If you're hearing my voice right now, you are the resistance. Good night. Good night.